All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm talking to you from New York City on the 19th of February, 2019. As always, I'd like to remind you, I'm the editor of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, uh, and uh, you can subscribe to that letter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. Also, like to uh, encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Chen is especially astute in the biotech sector, which he watches very closely and uh, knows a lot of the insiders, a lot of the principles of startup companies, companies that have made a fortune and have done very well for his for his subscribers and for his family as well. ChenPix.com. ChenPix.com is a place to go to learn more about Chen and to sign up for his letter. We also like to plug Michael Oliver's letter, Michael Oliver's, Oliver's Momentum and Structural Analysis. Um, you can sign up for that at OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. There's a lot of free stuff there as well at that website. And we want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. I encourage you to send along your criticisms, comments of whatever kind. Positive, we'll take those too. Uh, send those remarks along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. And of course, we do want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Without them, we would have no show. Our sponsors for today's show RN Resources, Gold Mining Inc., Great Bear Resources, Miramont Resources, Novo Resources, Triumph Gold, and Uranium Energy. I've titled today's show, Peak Trump, The Undrainable Swamp and the Fantasy of MAGA. Former Congressman and U.S. Budget Director under President Reagan, David Stockman, will be with us, as will Amir Adnani, the President and CEO of Uranium Energy Corp. David will be with me in the second half of today's show to talk about his new book titled Peak Trump, The Undrainable Swamp and the Fantasy of MAGA. Early in his presidency, President Reagan compared the very large, portly Democratic Speaker of the House of Representatives, Tip O'Neill, with the federal U.S. debt. Specifically, Reagan said, and I quote, the U.S. budget is like Tip O'Neill. It's big, fat, and out of control, end of quote. Well, that was before the U.S. debt load hit even $1 trillion, which uh, at that time had Americans extremely concerned. Now, when our budget debt, our total debt, is $22 trillion, most people, including President Trump, seem totally unfazed by it. It seems as though we have been living beyond our means for so long and getting away with it 
that people have actually come to believe the big Keynesian socialist lie that there is no limits to what within these dimensions of time and space to what we can consume and enjoy. The uh, extreme left wing Democrats definitely seem to be saying that there are no laws of economics that any longer restrain what all of humanity can enjoy. No matters of physics need to get in the way of what we can experience. And for short-term political gains, politicians of both major parties appear ready to sell that big lie, including Donald Trump, who was very concerned about low interest rates and a surging deficit and debt during President Obama's presidency, but now wants the same kind of free interest rate ride that Obama experienced during his presidency, even though a continuation of low interest rates, which encourages more debt, of course, even though that over the longer term is leading the American economy to a sure death. David Stockman voted for Donald Trump in the hope, beyond hope, that somehow he could reduce America's military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned us about, and by so doing bring America's pathological budget deficit under control, and hopefully lead us back to a more uh, free market oriented economic environment. I've always admired David Stockman, including uh, those days when he was with President Reagan, when he stood up to the president by pointing out publicly against an over, uh, overstated benefits of uh, many of the supply siders in the Reagan administration. Uh, certainly, David's position was, and I think history proves, that uh, lower, lowering taxes was more of a political stimulus than an actual economic stimulus. For those of you as old as me, who uh, paid attention to national politics in the early 1980s, you will recall that the U.S. press talked about how Reagan had to uh, had to take uh, David Stockman, the young Stockman, to the woodshop for a good whipping. Rather than kiss the posterior end of the president, as most people in politics do, David bravely stood up to the president on that issue because his very astute, detailed analysis of the budget said that supply-side economics would not work. Indeed, he was right, as Reagan had run the deficit far larger than any other president before him, far larger than President Jimmy Carter. The discussion that I had with David Stockman uh, that will be played in the second half of today's show was recorded on February 6th. That's the day after President Trump's State of the Union message. And I asked David for his response on the president's message, which set the stage for David's appraisal not only of Trump's presidency so far, but to show just how dire the headwinds are that Trump will face economically and politically uh, as he looks forward to a second term. I think you will enjoy David's insights, even if they are not seen through the rose-colored glasses that Republican propagandists might want us to wear. Uh, Amir Adnani will join me uh, after our first commercial break to update us on uranium energy, for which he serves as president and CEO. The uh, U.S. consumes some 55 million pounds of uranium annually for its nuclear power plants, but it has to import all except, well, actually less than a million pounds per year produced in the United States. So it has to, it has to import virtually all of the uranium that's used to keep 20% of our electricity uh, going and coming our way in the United States. Well, pending now is some government regulation or at least some investigations into the national security issues that surround this uranium shortage in the United States. Uh, and about the only company that's really ready to start up production immediately 
uh, is uh, Uranium Energy Corporation, Amir's company. So I'll be talking to him about his plans to grow uranium energy, uh, what the prospects are for higher uranium prices and uh, potentially some government regulation that might boost those prices. Uh, and um, so we'll want to hear what what um, Amir has to say. It's, a, I think, a very uh, important developing bull market in uranium, although there's still a lot of a lot of naysayers on that issue, of course. So we'll talk to Amir right after our first commercial break. And about this time, usually, we say hello to Michael Oliver because of an extended pre-recorded discussion with David Stockman. I'm not able to have Amir with me uh, today for, uh, I mean, I'm not able to have Michael with me today for the first segment. However, he did pass on a bit of important news just before the show with regard to the surging price of gold. And as I look at the price of gold, it is up dramatically today, only about uh, about thirteen forty, I think, just about $1,340. Well, John Rubino put out a very important article titled, he put it out, he put this out yesterday titled, Hello, Old Friend, Gold Nears 1350 Resistance That Has Repelled It Four Times in Five Years. The question in John's article is the obvious one. Can gold finally break through the 1350 ceiling that has constrained it over the last five years? Well, for Michael and for subscribers of his, the answer to that question is a no-brainer. Michael's momentum chart shows that it's a done deal. Gold will break out above 1350, while chart technicians will ham and haw until the metal actually does break above 1350, Michael's momentum chart provides a highly a high level of confidence that this time gold will not only break out above 1350, but then rise dramatically higher after that. When I asked Michael about this this question, uh, if he would have a comment that I could pass on to you, he gave me permission to say the following, and I'm quoting Michael Oliver. He said, "In quote, this push on that level." 1350, after five years, is highly likely to soon break through the public's line and whoosh, end of quote. Well, when Michael says whoosh, that means he thinks we're going to hit, cut through 1350 uh, like a knife through hot butter and uh, and then go up to much higher levels. And Michael said that as well. But if you are a subscriber of Michael's and look at his chart, it would be very clear that we are already there. And I would say that not because uh, it's it's a one-time deal. I mean, I've seen Michael's work over and over and over again, and uh, and his momentum work almost always accurately gets you into a bull market at an earlier price and out in a bear market at a higher price. And uh, I'm just you know this is why I have Michael on almost every week. We didn't have time this week for him to come on. Hopefully, he'll be with us next week again. It's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, to catch up with Michael's work. And we remind you that he does have a lower-priced product just for gold and silver precious metals uh, that you might want to consider signing up for. So it's OliverMSA.com. Well, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Amira Nanny will be with us. Some really interesting and potentially very exciting things for uranium energy taking place now as the United States doesn't produce anywhere nearly enough uranium to meet its own needs. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Amira Danny. Nope. 
Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on their wholly owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario, Canada. Recent drill results yielded an impressive 1,600 grams per tonne gold over 0.7 meters near surface. GBR is fully funded to drill 300-plus holes this year. McEwen Mining is a significant shareholder following a $5.7 million investment as part of a recent $10 million financing. Visit greatbearresources.ca. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Amira Nani, the president and CEO of Uranium Energy. Uh, thanks for joining me again, Amir. Hi, Jay. Good to reconnect. It's always good to reconnect with you. Uh, you're always the, uh, the optimist, uh, but also the realist, and you're also uh, an executive that is a patient, long-term investor who knows how to buy things cheap and sell them dear. And you certainly uh, have picked an asset. You've had a lot of time to buy things cheap. Uranium has been on the ground, has really been uh, a depressed commodity for quite a while now. But it looks like things are getting about to get better, right? Things are gradually improving. And then, you know, if you get enough gradual improvement over a number of years, <clears throat> you start to hopefully have a setup where you can see a breakout. And I think we're... Seeing that kind of development, Jay, where things have been gradually getting fundamentally better. Last year, nuclear energy generation globally recovered to levels um, uh, pre-Fukushima or the levels we were at uh, pre-Fukushima, the situation in Japan uh, eight years ago. That's a good fundamental turning point. And uh, you look at basically uh, a record number of reactors being connected uh, to the grid, uh, Maybe not record, but something like the best numbers in 25 years, which is, uh, mm. again, shows we're in the right trend. And you've had um, just some really positive signals. But I think the one catalyst that's really fascinating, and um, you and I have touched on it, is this U.S. government investigation into uranium um, and the uh, national security implications that mm-hmm. it could have or it does have. And I think that could be the, the development that really could be a game changer for a company like UEC with U.S. assets. And having been pounding the table for 14 years, 
saying that, hey, there's a shortage of uranium in the U.S. being mined, and um, mm-hmm. this doesn't look right. And now I think finally this is something that's being felt very seriously. Mm-hmm. All right, Amir, let's go into that a little bit. The number of ounce, uh, the number of uh, pounds that are being produced in the U.S., uh, it's less than a million pounds. I think you said something like 400,000 this year is projected. But we consume 55 million pounds, something like that. Do I have that right? Yeah, I totally have it right. I mean, uh, said differently, there's 98 operating reactors in the U.S. Uh, that, by the way, makes the U.S. Uh, as the country that has the largest nuclear fleet in the world. And uh, annual requirements are, are, as you say, about 45 million pounds. U.S. mines are projected to produce less than 400,000 pounds in 2019. So that's not mm. enough for even one reactor. And that's pretty astounding when you think about 98 reactors operating and there's not going to be enough uranium mined domestically for the needs of even one out of 98. Uh, so I think this actually is the type of thing where uh, you know, some people look at the U.S. government action as being somewhat related to uh, something that only maybe President Trump would do. But I actually think this is quite a bipartisan issue. Uh, and um, to really kind of demonstrate that, just a couple of weeks ago, Jay, uh, the president signed um, the Nuclear Energy uh, Modernization Act into, uh, into law. And uh, it was a bipartisan measure. Uh, and, in fact, we're seeing very strong bipartisan support uh, on Capitol Hill, and it's driven by two factors. There's definitely improving public opinion towards nuclear power, and many of the previous organizations, climate organizations that were against nuclear power, you know, we're talking about the Sierra Club or uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists, they're not coming out and they're speaking in support of nuclear power because they recognize you can be an environmentalist and not support nuclear power. If you want to reduce uh, whether it's climate issues around temperature and global warming or whether you just want to decarbonize the economy, the, the renewables are just not uh, generating enough electricity around the clock to meet those needs. The only source of baseload power generation that's 24-7 around the clock and totally CO2 emission-free is nuclear power. And mm-hmm. so this is, this is really what's driving this bipartisan support. So coming back to the government investigation into uranium, this is one of those things where, again, I don't think people should confuse it with being just, um, you know, whether you hate Trump or love Trump. Don't confuse this as being something that only um, he or the Republican Party supports. The Democrats get the importance of clean nuclear power for clean electricity. Uh, Republicans get it. They're getting behind it in a big way. And we can be relying on Russia for all of our uranium. You know, if you look at Russia and Soviet, former Soviet Union countries, Jay, Majority, 40% of uranium being imported into the U.S. is from former Soviet Union countries, including Russia. So huh. this doesn't add up to be uh, a plausible case. Now, I know people argue and say, well, steel and aluminum, you know, did we really need the tariffs? But that, you know, our, honestly, the national security argument there was not nearly as powerful as it is here. In the case of uranium, there really is a national security case to be made. And the U.S. is way over-dependent on foreign uranium um, uh, then, then it should be, not just for power generation, but don't forget the Department of Defense and Nuclear Navy uh, for uh, medicinal purposes, all of that. Uranium gets used up in some really key industries. Yeah, well, we have, uh, I suppose a lot of Americans are going to say, well, we have our friends to the north, your country, Amira. Canada is a major producer of uranium. Why don't we just uh, rely on Canada? 
Excellent question. And the reality is even the Canadian mines cannot make money. I mean, I think the listeners need to really pay attention to this point, which is the biggest and most uh, successful and, and first-tier mine in Canada, MacArthur River, which is in uh, sort of central north part of Canada and northern Saskatchewan. That mine was shut down last summer. It was shut down because the company that owns and operates it cited low uranium prices. And so this is definitely one of those situations where the friendly neighbor to the north that historically could be a reliable source of natural resources, uranium price has been uh, so low for so long because of the issues uh, that, uh, that we saw with an oversupplied market that even that mine at today's uranium price can't make money. And so it really comes down to one of these things where I think if you're looking at the importance of nuclear energy, Jay, just, just last week, a handful of uh, CEOs of U.S. nuclear energy companies went to visit with the president and talk about the importance of nuclear energy, not just as a source of power generation domestically, but as an export industry where you can create really a lot of high-paying jobs associated and attached with it. You had Bill Gates. You know, Bill Gates was on Capitol Hill just uh, three weeks ago advocating for nuclear power, talking about uh, how he's putting a lot of his own money behind innovation and research and development uh, in, the, in the field of nuclear energy. I mean, it's, it's really, these are things that you and I have never really seen before, this much support uh, for the industry, for nuclear technology, uh, from a very varied uh, sort of group of people. Uh, and uh, uh, Bill Gates in particular, I mean, he's become a big champion, and he really believes the key is, the, the key is in U.S. technology. And, Jay, you can't have all this great nuclear technology if you don't have the basic fuel, the uranium that is mm -hmm. needed to power whether it's small modular reactors or large reactors. Okay, so there's some investigation now going on within the government to determine to what extent this is a national security issue. Do you, do you have any idea when we might hear something from the government on that topic, on that, on that matter? Uh, it's really a spring-summer uh, expectation. We expect to hear something in the, in the spring or summer, uh, and uh, it would be, uh, you know, it's, uh, this is something that we're just going to have to wait and see, Jay. I mean, it could be mm -hmm. possibly uh, quotas, um, the possibility that U.S. utilities will have to buy a certain percentage of their needs from U.S. mined uranium. Uh, mm -hmm. It could be tariffs. It could be a combination of the two. We don't know. Uh, but um, what we do know is that uh, the timetable should be spring or at the very latest this summer to have the final determinations. All right. So, I mean, that should. Uh, I mean, it, I, the uranium price is water now, Amir. What's, it, what's, what's UE3 selling at now? The uranium price has been fairly flat since the beginning of the year at around $29 uh, per pound. Uh, the incentive price to build new uranium projects is anywhere between 50 to $65 per pound. So we still need to see a meaningful increase in the uranium price uh, before um, any kind of project development can take place. But that's what's so exciting, I think, about this opportunity, Jay, is the fact that, uh, you know, it's, um, uh, the, the commodity price really has to uh, uh, move meaningfully higher before... Um, before there's, again, the incentive price and the, the right economic environment. And I think that's kind of where, you know, we've been preparing over the last uh, few years, not only buying assets, but uh, really using this downturn as an opportunity to 
permit projects. You know, permitting is the long lead item in building mines in the U.S. It takes six mm-hmm. to seven years to get permits. And so you have a situation where uh, you can have, you know, a very high uranium price. You can have lots of money as a company, but if you don't have permits, you can't build and operate. And so when you look at the assets that we now have in Texas and Wyoming, these are fully permitted for production. We don't need to go through that six to seven year period. We've already been through it, and it's kind of very painful and boring and long, and, but you've got to do it, right? And that's why the projects that we develop in the U.S. really benefit from being safe, modern, and environmentally friendly because there's such a rigorous permitting process in place. Um, yeah. So I'm excited I- about the fact that you know, we have uh, this setup. You have, uh, your in-situ recovery uh, is a very low impact, very low, a very environmentally friendly process, and it's also low cost. Amir, can you give us some idea, because you have some production history, albeit limited in the past, you have some production history from your South Texas uh, facility. Can you give us an idea what your cost is per pound, and also uh, what you're planning to do to get ready for this uh, potential rise in price uh, resulting from some of these factors that we're just discussing? Well, we just announced recently that uh, we'll be commencing work on an economic study at our Reno Creek project in uh, Powder River Basin of Wyoming that we're commencing um, uh, drilling, development drilling, and uh, drilling related to permitting at our Burke Hollow project um, uh, in South Texas. Uh, and so we're expecting to be very active and busy in the coming months with uh, uh, kind of advancing our projects on two fronts, with uh, uh, projects that are uh, institute recovery, as you point out. This is a very low-cost way of mining uranium using solution uh, in deposits that are sandstone basin hosted. And it's really the, the type of mining that the U.S. has the greatest amount of history with. Uh, and so the regulators get it, the operators get it. Our company, as you say, we have an operating track record as, a, uh, as having previously operated our Palangana uranium mine in South Texas, where our cash cost came in just under $22 per pound, um, which is very competitive on a global, if you look at a global cost curve, most uh, sort of first-tier, first-quartile mines are sub-$30 per pound cost. And mm-hmm. so... Even if you look at our project's cost on a fully loaded basis with taxes, royalties, um, uh, this is a project that could be uh, just under $30 per pound uh, for uh, production. But to have cash cost of less than $22 per pound not only gives us uh, the ability to say, look, we have a low-cost operation, but also really establishes proof of concept where you can demonstrate mm-hmm. that as a company and as a team, you have the experience and the wherewithal to execute on both exploration development and the mining side of uranium. There's a real shortage of skilled uh, labor in this area, too. I mean, yeah. a lot of people, you can imagine, in the last seven or eight years or even ten years, you didn't get up and say, geez, I better go get a job in the uranium mining business, yeah. right? I mean, it just it, yeah. there's no, been no jobs. The people, I, I tell you, like even four years ago, Jid, I think there was over 1,000 people employed in the industry in the U.S., mm-hmm. and today it's less than 400. So we've lost wow. a lot of jobs, which is really unfortunate. But the companies and people, the companies like you, you see that have kept their key people, the key experience, that human capital is very precious and it's very scarce and it becomes a competitive advantage because now you can move faster, right? Because mm-hmm. if there's any kind of price signal 
that incentivizes development of U.S. uranium projects, this is going to be a foot race to see who can build mines and who can develop and be a producer uh, faster in the U.S. And UEC really stands to, to win that foot race because we've got the people, the permits, and the resources and infrastructure, right? The Hobson Processing Plan, where we can process our own uranium, is fully built. It's fully All permitted. Right. All right, Amir, we're going to have to leave it go at that because we're really out of time. But so what price then do you need something north of $30, I suppose, $35 or so before you start to and think about getting back into production? Yeah, we want to see a price um, really for our existing projects like Palangana between 40 to 45 for mm-hmm. new projects. We want to see a price closer to 50 uh, That's uh, very much in line and, in fact, on the lower end of where uh, any feasibility study done globally shows projects. I think most projects, hard rock mines, need 65 to $75 per pound as incentive price to come online. All right, we'll have to leave it go with that. It's Uranium Energy, for any, Uranium Energy Corporation, trades in New York Stock Exchange, UEC, symbol. I saw it at $1.41 earlier today. Amir, it's a pleasure catching up with you again. Really great story, and uh, I'm sure we'll want to talk to you again sometime uh, perhaps this spring when we find out more about the, the government's position in this very strategic metal. Thanks so much for being with look, us. Look forward to it. Thank you, Jay. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go now. That's all the time we have left. Um, next week, uh, we'll be uh, looking to talk to, uh, I'm going to have Quentin Henning on as, uh, as well as Chris Taylor, two of my favorite gold mining companies. Uh, they'll be with me next week, Michael Oliver as well. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district-scale Free Gold Mountain Gold Copper Project in Yukon with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC markets TIGCF. The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Uranium Energy Corp, NYSE, American UEC, is America's emerging uranium producer. The company is 100% unhedged and has fully permitted and licensed processing plant and production-ready uranium assets in South Texas and Wyoming. With the rising uranium spot price, UEC is positioned to lead and supply to the U.S. uranium requirements ahead. Visit uraniumenergy.com and on Twitter at Uranium Energy. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have David Stockman with me today to talk about his most recent book titled Peak Trump, The Undrainable Swamp and the Fantasy of MAGA. Welcome back, David, and thanks for joining me again. Great. Happy to be with you. We're talking to you today after President Trump's State of the Union message. And so even though this show won't air until the 19th of February, I'd like to ask you to perhaps just give me your thoughts about Trump's speech last night. I mean, I certainly found a lot of things that I liked to hear. There were other things that made me cringe, but what were your thoughts? Well, basically, the union that he described as strong and on the verge of, uh, you know, a historic opportunity is not the union that I see. I see uh, a Washington that is out of control, deficits exploding at the very end of a 10-year-old business cycle, unheard of. Uh, I see uh, Wall Street in a bubble that is exactly what he said in the campaign, one big, fat, ugly bubble, but he's forgotten about that, and he's embraced, you know, the bubble when it got 800 points bigger on the S&P 500 than when uh, he was campaigning. I heard a mixed bag on foreign policy. You know, I voted for Trump. I've supported a lot of things that he has done, and reeling in the American empire is first and foremost among them. I thought America first was a kind of standard that uh, could uh, be established to reorient American foreign policy to defense of the homeland uh, and not uh, policing the entire globe. But, But unfortunately, last night, half of the time he was talking peace and America first, which I applaud hardly, and then half of the time uh, he was talking uh, the same old warfare state rhetoric, the attack on the Iranian nuke deal I think is totally uh, misbegotten and misplaced, Uh, the cancellation of the INF treaty that Ronald Reagan put into place for crying out loud in 1987 was uh, a huge mistake, uh, provocation uh, unnecessary with uh, Russia, bragging about uh, attempting to determine who is the proper president of uh, Venezuela, I think is just more of this kind of neocon interventionism. And it sort of reminded you that when Trump is left to his own devices, he says, uh, you know, forever wars, no more. And he goes back to the White House and he's surrounded by all these people that he's picked for key jobs, uh, Bolton, Pompeo, uh, you know, and uh, you could go on from there, uh, who are neocon interventionists interventionist, unreconstructed American empire firsters uh, who are constantly undermining uh, his best impulses. So if you add it all up, you have a Trump fiscal policy that is a disaster. You have his trade wars, which uh, address a real problem, our trade deficits, but go about it in a totally uh, uh, wrong and uh, counterproductive way. You have an obsession with the border and uh, the crisis there, which is entirely concocted, as far as I can tell, by Fox News. And and so, uh, therefore, you end up with a mixed bag of... Uh, you know, circularity and uh, confusion that, in a sense, um, maybe is uh, understandable and par for the course, because I have said all along in my first book uh, called Trumped, where I predicted he would win the election, and it came out in September uh, 2016, and then in this current one, uh, Peak Trump, uh, 
that his job is to be the great disruptor, to discredit the status quo and the bipartisan consensus and the indispensable nation, America, empire first foreign policy. And he's uh, to some extent doing that, but by uh, expanding the deficit the way he has, um, I think it's uh, likely to bring about uh, a financial crisis sometime in the next year or so that will really do the job of uh, uh, discrediting uh, current policy and maybe uh, uh, alerting the country to the fact that we're going in the wrong direction on almost everything and we need to uh, get back to some basic principles of fiscal rectitude, sound money, free markets, and small government. Trump didn't say a word about any of those principles last night, despite despite 75 minutes worth of uh, rhetoric uh, and uh, flag-waving and bombast and confusing uh, positions uh, on issues. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly one of the things that made me cringe was this, uh, all the goodies that he was handing out, um, yeah. obviously looking for praise and accolades from both sides of the aisle. And I'm thinking, how in the world are we going to pay for this? David, um, before we get to the how are we going to pay for this topic, it seems to me that from a political point of view, and I think you alluded to this too in one of the interviews I heard from you recently, at the time it seemed to me like he was making a big mistake by not biting the bullet as soon as he came in. As you mentioned, well, when he came into office, we already had, we were already eight years into the credit cycle, essentially, and it was long in the tooth. The stock market, the, the, this boom, wasn't much of a boom, frankly, compared to the booms of the past, but we had a long growth period with zero interest rates and all that, and I mean, he was critical of it when he when he ran for office, but then hypocritically forgot all about it and cheered low interest rates and started giving the Fed a hard time when they started trying to get back to reality, but um why do you think that Larry Kudlow, Steve Mnuchin, some of the economists around him might not have given him the same kind of advice that Ronald Reagan was given during his first term, and that is bite the bullet now, get the hard work out of the way so that when you run for your next term, maybe you're on an uptrend again. Boy, you've hit the nail right on the head, and that's what I've been talking about. <clears throat> he should have taken a, a page out of Ronald Reagan's playbook, who inherited a very bad situation, not as bad as the disaster down the road we're facing today, but he never stopped attacking the failed Jimmy Carter economy, the failed Jimmy Carter policies, the mistakes uh, that had been inherited from uh, decades of Democrat uh, policy. And he did that over and over and over. He told Volcker, get the job done, break the back of this inflation. We went through a very nasty and painful uh, recession. Unemployment did go back up to 10%. Uh, he was roundly criticized for it, but it, we got it over in 1980. 1983, the economy started to rebound, and by 1984, it was booming. And then it was safe to say uh, to embrace uh, an economy that had a future, but uh, not, you know, the day you walk in. And unfortunately, Trump has got such an unchained uh, ego, if I right. put it that way, that the minute the stock market started going up on the false uh, uh, hope that he was going to turn everything around, uh, he embraced this big, fat, ugly bubble. And so this is why I call it peak Trump, really, because it, the S&P 500 was uh, at 2140 during the last part of the campaign uh, in 2016. He said it was a big, fat, ugly bubble. He was right then. 
then, two years later, September 20, uh, 2018, it's now at 2940, up 800 points, and suddenly the big, fat, ugly bubble is uh, a vindication, uh, glowing vindication of how Trump, uh, Trumponomics has uh, been such a brilliant success. That was a huge rookie mistake to embrace that bubble because it has nowhere to go down, and now we're in a little uh, yeah, rebound here, but this is just the, uh, I, I call it the uh, chart monkeys uh, trading chart points, uh, 200-day moving averages and the rest of it. It's not going to go back to that peak, not next month, not next year, or not uh, for a long time because we're in huge trouble and sooner or later uh, the stock market is going to crater uh, in response. So he made a mistake there. The other thing you mentioned I think is really important. People don't get it. You know, the economy doesn't function on presidential terms of four years. And if presidents, you know, modestly change policy, it takes months and months and quarters, even years, for the impact uh, to be felt if it's positive, and usually it's not. So therefore, in the first two years, to embrace an economy that was at the tail end of a uh, tepid uh, business cycle, uh, again, uh, made no sense and was uh, a huge uh, mistake that he's going to pay for. Specifically, when he was sworn in, we were already in month 90 of this business expansion, the third longest in history. There have only been two longer, the one in the 60s, the bre- you know, the guns and butter one, the one in the 90s, the Greenspan tech boom. But this recovery had been a shadow of those uh, prior cycles. Uh, GDP in month 90, this time when he was sworn in, was up 13% from the pre-crisis peak way back in 207. The comparable position in the 60s was the uh, GDP was up about 45%. And in the 90s, uh, at month 90, uh, in the 90s cycle, it was up about 37%. So he was inheriting a very weak, fragile, debt-ridden, savings-parched, you know, uh, uh, distorted economy from the bubble finance uh, on Wall Street of the Fed. And instead of recognizing its uh, fragility, and vulnerability to any uh, number of headwinds coming uh, in all directions around the world. He started bragging about an unemployment rate that always comes under 4% in the last few months of even a long business cycle. And I point out in the book, I've got some charts in there that are pretty dramatic, that when the unemployment rate in the end of the 60s, 1960s cycle, hit 3.7%, within a year we were in the recession of 1970. Uh, When the 1990s cycle, uh, the uh, so-called U3 unemployment rate, which really isn't worth the powder to blow it to hell with, but that's another story. Nevertheless, when it got down to 3.7, 3.8%, we were within a year of the recession that incepted in March uh, 201. So, so we're at the tail end uh, of an octogenarian business cycle where uh, there's nowhere for the economy to go but to have its next recession. No one's outlawed recessions. There's a lot of headwinds we can talk about coming around the world and domestically, including this massive deficit. 
the Fed pivot to QT. Now they're kind of waffling and double-talking the market, but they, they're still dumping $50 billion of bonds in back into the bond pits a month, and that's going to affect uh, supply and demand adversely, which say prices will be pressured down and yields up. All of this is going on, and um, he spent uh, his time in the State of the Union address bragging about uh, the lowest unemployment rate in 40 years. Yeah. Terrible mistake. Besides that, you know, he was elected by Flyover America by the burned-out Rust Belt precincts of, you know, Wisconsin and Iowa and Michigan, Western Pennsylvania, Ohio. And, and the fact is, there's been no boom there. And even the numbers I cited on the general GDP recovery overstate what has actually happened on Main Street. Here's two numbers that I think encapsulate what has happened since 2007 and since the so-called Great Financial Crisis. From the pre-crisis peak, the NASDAQ 100, which is really the leading edge of the tech uh, boom bubble that's underway uh, right now, the NASDAQ 100, even adjusted for inflation, is up 200%. And this isn't from the bottom. This is from the prior peak in October, November 2007. By contrast, industrial production from uh, the prior peak in November 2007 is up 3%. Now, that's 11 years ago. So the recovery is so weak that we've only gained net 3% on industrial production in 11 years when the stock market was gaining 200% in the bubble. So that tells you that this has been a bifurcated recovery, a tremendous artificial Fed-fueled boom on Wall Street and basically flatlining struggle on Main Street. And the ultimate uh, proof of that, another chart I have in the book, is if you take real median uh, household income from 2007 to the present, it's up zero. <laughs> and if you take the, the economy, despite all this ridiculous U3 unemployment rate, you know it doesn't measure anything because they arbitrarily exclude tens of millions of people from the labor force. And on the one side and on the other side, they count anybody that's got a part-time job at McDonald's for 10 hours a week as employed. Well, so that number isn't worth the powder to blow it to hell with, as I said. But there is one that the BLS publishes that never gets talked up on bubble vision or even mentioned, and that is hours worked in the uh, U.S. economy. Because that, when you take hours work, then that means a guy working in a steel mill overtime 55 hours a week is getting 55 hours of credit. The McDonald's uh, hamburger flipper is getting 10 hours. So when you look at it on an hours basis, which is the right way in our world today, it's all, you know, a gig by the hours economy, uh, Wolf, you know, Walmart schedules them by uh, their cashiers, let's say, by 15-minute intervals. So if you look at it in hours, total hours utilized by the U.S. economy since the prior peak in late 2007 is up only 6%. Wow. Okay? That's a startling number. That's 6% in 11 years. That's okay? incredible. That's not a healthy economy. No. That's not anything to brag about. No. That is a warning that something is drastically wrong when there's no gain in real household income, 3% 
uh, creeping forward of the entire industrial economy, including the boom in the shale patch and energy. That's mm-hmm. all in the index, and it's still up only 3%. Yeah. Uh, hours up 6%, and the stock market up 200%. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it gets to this issue of a redistribution of wealth that is really causing a lot of a lot of difficulty sociologically, I think, and, and politically in our country, David. Uh, obviously, I think you would agree that if we had a sound monetary system, this kind of redistribution of wealth would not be possible. You would agree with that, right? I, you know, I agree with it 100%, and that's another thing that I address in the book. So, you know, I appreciate you bringing it up. But as I think a lot of people can understand, this really started what I call bubble finance, this crazy money printing at the Fed, really got going in a big way when Greenspan stepped in in 1987 within mm-hmm. a month of getting the job. We had Black Monday, the stock market down 22%. He panicked, opened up the spigots, uh, sent his minions down to Wall Street and told them you have to keep buying stock and trading with each other whether you want to or not. That's when it all started. But here is a startling fact that tells you all you need to know about this artificial redistribution of income. If you go at that point, the bottom 90% of households in the U.S. owned about 34% of the net worth of the U.S. economy. The top 1% owned 34%. Now, you know, I, I'm not, I'm a free market capitalist, so I, you know, I'm not an egalitarian. I don't sure. think there was anything particularly wrong with that. The 1% more or less get rewarded because they do good things for the economy sure. and the, the bottom 90% don't save enough, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the point. If that was kind of a fair measure of outcomes on the free market, because we really hadn't had crazy monetary policy yet, and all this stock market propping and puts and all the rest of it. Here today, here's where we are. The top 1% now have 40% of the net worth. The top 1% have gone from 34 to 40. The bottom 90% have dropped from 34 to 20. Okay, so now we've gone from even Steven one to one to uh, two to one, and that's not due to any change in tax policy. That's not due to any late stage failure of capitalist uh, functionality and so forth. That is a direct consequence of bad monetary policy of what I call the bubble finance, uh, Wall Street-oriented, Wall Street-captivated Federal Reserve that uh, has been running the show uh, with increasing uh, dominance uh, since the late 1980s. Okay, David, could you help our listeners understand why this cannot continue to go on? Uh, I believe you would agree that something drastic has to change. Could we work our way through another bubble, or will this be something that changes perhaps our monetary system, something as drastic as 1971, perhaps? I mean, I'm seeing a lot of uh, foreign nations that are becoming not interested in buying treasuries anymore as they once were. China, for mm-hmm. one. Uh, I see our European partners are becoming increasingly unhappy about Trump's stance in Iran, for example, and finding ways to defy sanctions that he's trying to force on Europe. I see the Germans aren't happy about Trump trying to stop the pipeline from Russia into Germany. It seems to me that the United States as an empire may be may be heading into some real trouble. It has its own financial rot uh, that I think could destroy us. How can we afford the military, continuous, endless military expansion, and then not to mention the OACs of this world that think we can have endless bliss and socialism here at home? David, uh, $22 trillion debt right now. 
means a 1% increase in interest rates adds $220 billion to our, to our expenditures for a year. Aren't we getting close to some sort of a cataclysmic ending of this nonsense that began in earnest in 1971? Well, I don't know if it's a cataclysm, but it's going to be a totally different world. I think we've pivoted into a long, uh, painful period of uh, you know uh, reckoning. And the reason I say that is Trump inherited a $20 trillion de- uh, debt, and that was bad enough, but then he doubled down. You know, we had this mm-hmm. huge Tax cut uh, paid for on Uncle Sam's credit card. He took the swamp uh, of waste at the Pentagon at six hundred billion and upped it to seven twenty. To get mm-hmm. that, he gave the Democrats sixty or seventy billion of domestic pork barrel to get them to vote for his defense, and they then threw in, you know, a hundred billion of uh, uh, disaster aid unpaid for by anything. Yeah. So the, the the point I'm getting at is the structural deficit he inherited was bad enough. He's now taken it to one point two trillion this year. And that's before we get a recession. Yeah. When the recession comes, it's going to be $2 trillion. My math laid out carefully in the book is that uh, the inherited plus the Trump overlay will create $20 trillion of new debt in the next 10 years. We'll be at $40 trillion, not $20 trillion. If interest goes up 100 basis points, which it will from where we're headed, that's uh, $400 billion of debt service a year, almost as much or half as much as the Pentagon budget and four times more than we pay for food stamps. So fiscally, we're heading into uh, a doomsday. We have a doomsday machine uh, unleashed, and we're heading into a disaster. But what's different this time is that even the Keynesians running the central banks of the world have finally realized they can't run these printing presses red hot year in, year out uh, till uh, eternity. And so they have pivoted to QT. And -hmm. that means the world is totally different. The only reason we got away with uh, the debt growing from $1 trillion when I was at the OMB uh, to $22 trillion today is the Fed was buying the bonds up hand over fist mm-hmm. and doing so forced the other central banks of the world to do the same. In other words, there was a QE convoy of central banks around the world that was uh, balance sheets of $2 trillion in the late 90, uh, 1990s ended up $25 trillion today. They scooped up you know, $22 trillion worth of basically sovereign debt plus some stock and uh, uh, corporate uh, bonds on the side. And that fundamentally, uh, you know, pushed interest rates lower and bond prices higher. But today we're marching in the opposite direction. Uh, they're not, you know, there's no net purchase any longer by the central banks of the world in the fixed income market, and they're begin. The Fed is selling at a 600 billion rate, and I think sooner or later, others are going to have to follow, or they're going to have an exchange rate crisis and capital flight and you know domestic imported inflation and all the rest of it. So this time, and I think this is my final point on this. They, the, the central banks of the world painted themselves into such a dire corner that they're desperately now trying to get interest rates up so they have something to cut. They're desperately trying to shrink their balance sheets so they have headroom uh, to rescue the economy again next time around, but it's too late. And so, therefore, they're out of dry powder, and when we tip over into recession, and it's happening around the globe already. Germany, you saw the terrible numbers yes. that have been coming out lately. They're in recession. They're just a leading indicator of what's happening in China. And China is uh, kind of the uh, uh, 
ground zero of the whole artificial global economy. So we're heading into that recession. They're gonna, they're, there's not going to be a quick V-shaped uh, rebound, reflation, like we had last time because the central banks can't do it. They can't don't have do it. <laughs> the dry right. powder. So what we're going to have is a long uh, L-shaped uh, uh, financial market uh, depression, and the stock market is going to come back. So this uh, is the... You know, this is the time to get out because uh, there's going to be a 10-year vacation uh, in terms of... Get out and go where, David? Well, I mean, I think uh, gold's going to go up. Uh, gold is the contra-central bank asset, is the central banks of the world... Uh, uh, become uh, visibly uh, uh, failed, uh, I think uh, on the margin, um, money is going to seek uh, refuge in the hard asset that the banks, uh, central banks uh, can't manipulate uh, or destroy. Is there any chance, you know, when the Jim Cramers of this world, the crybabies that they are, the stock market starts to go down and they just blast Federal Reserve Chairman and demand more money, do you think that that they might, all these central bankers may throw in the towel and, and opt for something like hyperinflation? No, I don't think so. I think the central bankers are so Keynesian that they don't understand they've unleashed a monster in the financial system and once it starts unraveling, they're not going to be able to stop it. Secondly, uh, the numbers, that the, the indicators, you know, the incoming data they look at is all lagging uh, indicators, you know, the un unemployment rate and job the numbers, which is fabricated by the BL anyway. So they think they have a strong economy and they're going to kind of tiptoe around, uh, you know, not wanting to alienate either Wall Street or Washington. But on the other hand, they know that if they can't rescue the economy from the next recession, their mandate to be, uh, you know, the dictators of the financial system will come under severe challenge. So what they're going to do is uh, they're going to keep shrinking the balance sheet. They're going to try to inch up the uh, federal funds rate. Then the economy is going to crater and they're not going to be able to rescue it. All right, so I guess we're going to have uh, probably illiquidity, stay out of debt, get out of the stock market, go to cash, go to gold, and hunker down. But that's, have, that's exactly right. Well, it sounds, uh, you know, a little discouraging, but actually the idea of capital preservation in the midst of a major economic and financial dislocation is actually a smart thing to do. It's an intelligent thing to do, and it's a profitable thing to do because the capital, will, uh, cash, will be king when, uh, you know, all of this bubble finally uh, unwinds. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, David, for sharing your time with us again. Best wishes with your book and communicating these very serious issues with the American people. Look forward to seeing you on the boob tube from time to time and uh, to the extent that you get through to these thick-headed people. Thank you so much, and uh, for all, as always, for being with us. Well, folks, that is all the time we have this week. Next week, I will have two CEOs of two companies that I believe are on the verge of making major gold discoveries. Dr. Quentin Hanning of Novo Resources and Chris Taylor of Great Bear Resources will be with me, and hopefully Michael Oliver will be with me as well. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Gold Mining, Inc. 
ticker symbol G-O-L-D on the TSX and G-L-D-L-F on the OTC is the biggest bet for gold investors and legendary investors like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, and Marin Katusa, who put millions of dollars into backing the company, along with institutional investors. The insiders own over 20%. Gold mining has strong cash and no debt. It's one of the top 1% of gold companies that has over 20 million ounces of gold resources. Visit goldmining.com. Often referred to as one of the best teams in junior gold exploration, having discovered a 5 million ounce gold mine and sold a second company amidst discovery, the management behind Orin Resources now has a world-class exploration portfolio within Canada and Peru. Projects that give the company one of the largest direct pipelines for major discoveries globally, with one of the deepest technical teams to explore them. Entering into its third year of aggressive pursuit, Orin is expecting results from two of their major projects throughout the rest of this year. For the latest, head to orinresources.com and subscribe.